It was in 1946 that a young shepherd boy was wandering the desert around the Dead Sea looking for a lost goat when he fell into a cave. And there he found some jars containing several scrolls. He took them with him, showed it to a dealer who said they were pretty much worthless. So he sold them just in the marketplace for about $37. But some other antiquities dealers eventually took notice of these scrolls and realized they weren't so worthless. And the shepherd boy had just accidentally discovered what would later become known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And over the next several years, the caves around that site at Qumran yielded about 1,000 manuscripts dating back about 2,000 years. They had been stored there by a Jewish sect known as the Ascends. And of special note were all the manuscripts of the Hebrew Old Testament that had been meticulously copied and preserved. But the Ascends also preserved some of their own sectarian writings, like their, their prayer book, their discipline book, which showed how they lived as a little society. And clearly, the Ascends were a unique religious movement. They, they were Jews, they were Jewish separatists, but they had broken away from this temple-centered worship in Jerusalem sometime in the 2nd century B.C. They believed that the mainline Jews had become corrupt, and so they left to establish their own little monastic community in the desert to the south. They opted to live in communities that swore off interaction with the world. If you wanted to join them, you had to repent of all worldliness. You had to be ritually bathed in waters, kind of like a baptism. And you had to take a vow of poverty. You gave up all your money and all your possessions. And together, together they practiced asceticism and a strict observance of many Jewish laws. The Ascends also viewed themselves as quite enlightened. They believed they were in the light and everyone else was in the dark. In their writings, they fashioned themselves, they call themselves the sons of light and everyone else are the sons of darkness. And they believe they're, they're in this battle, this perpetual battle against the sons of darkness. Much of their writing is apocalyptic and usually they're just waiting for God to come to dispel the darkness where they and the light will live in everlasting peace forever. Now, some of that storyline might sound familiar to you, but the Ascends were by no means biblical. They were very mystical, and their writings are, are the musings of men influenced by the scriptures, but not tethered to the scriptures. And furthermore, the more you think about it and learn about this group, there, there's a sad irony to their beliefs and their practices, because here's this religious group claiming to know the way of salvation— that they and they alone have found the secret knowledge to get to God. They have the light. They've figured it out. And so what did they do about it? They kept it to themselves. The world was seen as a dark, unrighteous place, not worthy of the light. This world is only fit for divine judgment. They were enlightened. They, they were good enough to have found and discovered this light. But everyone else was to be left in the darkness. Does that sound right to you? I mean, if you really found truth and light, shouldn't you share it with the darkness around you? The irony is, here's this group who claimed to have the light of God. But they so effectively hid that light and bottled it up, it wasn't discovered for some 2,000 years. I mean, some, some good their light did to the world. Isn't the whole purpose of light to shine in the darkness? And to make matters even more interesting, it's quite possible that while this group, the Ascends, were literally bottling up their light, their teaching, their truth, so to speak, somewhere to the north, Jesus of Nazareth, uh, the, the Messiah, was telling his disciples to do the exact opposite. 
Jesus uses similar language, telling his followers, you are the light of the world. But they were not to hide this light away. Just the opposite. He tells them to shine this light for all the world to see. Their whole purpose is to shine in the darkness, that others might come to know the glory of God. We need to take the Lord's instruction seriously because all too many of us can be just like the ascends in heart, really no better. Some Christians may not live in a secluded community in the desert, but they might as well because they have just about the same impact on the world. And granted, they live in the world, they work in the world, they've got unbelieving friends and relatives, but they never let their light shine. They never share the gospel. They never have spiritual conversations. Most of their coworkers would be quite surprised to hear they're committed Christians. So they might as well be living in the desert because their light isn't shining. And this can describe all of us at times with our American comfort. And this is why we need a word of conviction and a word of correction from the Lord himself. We all do especially as our nation grows darker. And that's the word we get from Christ himself in his Sermon on the Mount. So you can take your Bibles now, turn them to Matthew chapter 5 once again. Matthew chapter 5, even if you didn't bring a Bible, grab a pew Bible. It's so much better if you can be in the text yourself. Matthew 5, 13 through 16 is our text this morning, which we actually began last week. As we're working through this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins this sermon with the Beatitudes, where he expounds upon the character of kingdom citizens. Then he goes on to speak of the conduct of kingdom citizens. And that conduct is interwoven with their identity. And because of who you are and who the Lord has made you to be, you should do certain things. And the Lord uses here two metaphors to tell us just that, who we are, and therefore what we should do. And these two metaphors are are essential to our identity and our function as the church. And they are familiar to us, salt and light. He says, you are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. These are potent, short sayings whose power derives from their simplicity, because all people from all nations use salt and light pretty much daily. And that's why Christ's teachings are so memorable. The only problem is people tend to remember the metaphors, but they don't remember the context or what they actually mean. And they can import their own ideas into what Jesus is saying by declaring us salt and light. But we just want to make sure we get these right, because these are two pillars of the church's identity. This is how we are to live in the world. Already Christ has told us that as his disciples were, were citizens of this, this kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, where our names are enrolled there, we are members of his kingdom. But the fullness of that kingdom is yet to come. In the meantime, we, we still live here, here below, in this world. And so the, the question every disciple faces is like, how do we do that? How do we live between two worlds? How do we carry this dual citizenship? In the last beatitude, In verses 10 through 12, Jesus told us to largely expect the world to relate to us negatively. If we're really going to follow Christ and his righteousness, we can usually expect them to treat us the way they treated the Lord. That is rejection, scorn, persecution even. But now here in verses 13 through 16, he's telling us how we should relate to the world. 
He doesn't say fight back or fight fire with fire. He doesn't even say run away. It's kind of what we'd expect at the, after the end of verses 10 through 12. You almost expect Jesus to say that you know, when they come after you, when they, when they aim to persecute you, just flee, run to the desert, set up your own little community, hide, and just leave this world to judgment. But that's not what he says. He, you know, if you must endure persecution, if you can't escape, face it, endure it. It's a sign of God's blessing. But more than that, just be salt and light. Both of these metaphors involve us, the church, being thoroughly in the world. Not of the world, not stained by the world, but most certainly in it, in the midst of its people. And for salt and light to have their desired effect, they must thoroughly be in the world. Last week, we covered verse 13. We spent our time sifting through the first image, that of salt, the salt of the earth. We found that Jesus had in mind the preserving function of salt, the main use for salt in the ancient world was not flavor. It was to preserve food, to keep things from decaying. And likewise, Jesus wants the church to be a type of preservative in this world to keep society from its downward spiral, to stem the tide of evil, to slow the world's freefall into depravity. And that's going to happen through the church's Christ-like holy influence. This, this is meant to be a chief function of the church, but it's often neglected or compromised. But being salt is only half the equation. And now we need to focus on the other half, which is light, being the light of the world. And the Lord has more in mind for us than to simply stop the world from decaying. He also wants us to to reach it, to transform it, to see others brought into the kingdom of light by God's grace. And this is what Jesus is getting at with this second metaphor. It's a bit more familiar to us, but it's still worth digging into, and that's what we'll do today. Let's go ahead and read again this passage to remind ourselves. Matthew 5, 13 through 16, and follow along. Christ says, after the Beatitudes, right after the Beatitudes, he says this, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. And then verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Like I said, today we're going to focus on verses 14 through 16, that the second image, that of light. We need to understand that the second half of our standing orders as the church, how we are to function. And this verse 14, or rather, is, is mostly parallel to verse 13. So I guess we'll keep our, our outline mostly parallel as well, just to organize our time. Here are four questions to answer on the church as the light of the world. Last time we had five, this time we'll make it a little more succinct and have four. Four questions to answer on the church as the light of the world. This will help us go through and make sense of what he's saying. So first, what is Jesus saying about light? The first question, what is he, what is he saying about light? Verse 14, you are the light of the world. What does he mean by that? Now, we all know what light is. I don't need to rattle off some facts about light to help you get to know light better. I, I think I can trust you know that. 
We use light to dispel darkness. It only takes a small amount of light to do so. I trust we've all been in that blackout situation where the electricity goes out and you, you break out the candles. It's amazing how a, a small flame can light up a whole room. Now, the challenge with the salt metaphor back from verse 13 was that now back in Christ's day, salt had about a dozen essential functions. And so we needed to discern what Jesus primarily had in mind when he said, you are salt. You're, you're to be like salt to the world. It's a little bit different with this light metaphor because really light just had one use to illumine. And Christ is not talking about fire. So he's not talking about warmth or anything like that. This is just about illumination, light shining in darkness. But he's obviously using light figuratively. So, so the real question is, what does this light represent? It's obviously figurative. What does this light represent? And the challenge here is that throughout Scripture, light is used as a metaphor all the time, but in many different ways. So we still wonder, like, what, which one is he talking about? You know, sometimes light is used to represent the presence of God, like the actual presence of God. 1 Timothy 6.16 says God dwells in unapproachable light. God led Israel out of the uh, Exodus. He shows up in a pillar of fire, light by day and by night. And in, in the eternal kingdom, Revelation 22.5, it says there's, there's no need for the sun, for the Lord God will illumine his people. He, it, his presence is often associated with light. And on the flip side, that the place of eternal judgment for the lost is often referred to as what? Outer darkness. Now, sometimes light is used to represent God's presence. It's also used to represent the salvation of those who will be in God's presence. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has light with darkness? And to be saved is to be in the light. Likewise, Acts 26, verse 18, Paul relates his commission. He was sent to preach the gospel. He says that the lost might open their eyes and turn from darkness to light, from the domain of Satan to God, he says. The realm of Satan is, is described as darkness and the realm of God as light. And you, believer, were formerly darkness, Ephesians 5, 8 says. You were formerly darkness, but now you are children of light. Your light in the Lord. There's no shortage of verses like this. So you look at Matthew 5.14. You think about what he's telling them. You are the light of the world. There's no doubt that what Jesus says here is related to their salvation. Now a point we'll come back to later is that Christ himself is the light of the world. But by their association with him, now they, they function as lights as well. And they are to represent and reflect his light to the world. But you can probably already see Jesus is commenting on more than just his disciples' salvation. He, he doesn't just say they're light. It'd be one thing if he said you are light. But he says you are the light of the world. And so their role as lights has a, a specified function here. And that is to illumine the world. And that precisely because they are believers and they have come to the light of God, now they've got a job to do in relationship to the world. So we're starting to get somewhere. We still need to ask how exactly the disciples are to do this. 
It's like Christ wants his disciples to be little light bulbs scattered all over the world, taking his light to the world, to the darkness. But this is still a metaphor. So, so what does he actually mean by that? How are disciples to actually do that? Well, there's two main ways, by word and by deed, right? By word and by deed. We know that one way disciples are to let the light of the Lord be made manifest to the world is, is by their words, by speaking truth, by sharing the gospel. Acts 26, verse 23, Paul, Paul said that Christ was the first to proclaim light to Jews and Gentiles. See, light is, is there. It's something to be proclaimed. It's something you speak. It's referring to gospel truth. The world sits in darkness, which is to say in ignorance and error and falsehood. And only the light of the gospel cuts through that darkness. And now we as the church, we're commissioned to, to carry on that light to the world, to take Christ's gospel, the truth of God to the world. Let that light shine. Again, the apostle Paul took up this mantle. He says, by taking gospel light into dark Gentile lands. And he says in Acts 13, 47, he says, for, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. So I think we know this. One big way we are meant to shine as lights in a dark world is by our words, by speaking truth, by sharing the gospel of, of Christ. But there's a second way we are meant to shine as lights in the world, and it's by our deeds, like just how we live, the things we do in the world. And so, the, like I said, the, the, the metaphor of light is used in many different ways, and sometimes it's used to refer to our holiness. Not, not things we say, but, but how we live, our holy, pure living. And from another perspective, the problem of the world is not just ignorance and error, but unholiness, but sin, unrighteousness. And God will use the image of Christ in us to convict the world. This is 1 John 1, 5. It says, God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. That is likewise figurative, and it's talking about God's holiness. God is pure. He's free from all sin and evil. And because of that, we are to be like him, as it says in verse 7 of 1 John 1. And we are to walk in the light just as he himself is in the light. And it's talking about holy living, pure living, free from sin. Also, over in John chapter 3, Christ plays on this light versus dark metaphor big time. And there, it's, it's not about saying the right things. It's about how you live. It's about holy conduct versus deeds of darkness. Listen to John three nineteen through 21. And Christ says, this is the judgment. That the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. He says, for everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Then he says, but he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. So you can see there that the clear contrast Jesus sets up between light and darkness is not about knowing truth and not knowing truth. It's about practicing truth and not practicing it. It's about deeds done in the light versus deeds done in the darkness. The one who does good and practices righteousness shows he is in the light. 
And this right here is what I believe Jesus has in mind the most when he says, you are the light of the world. Now, our first question here is, what is Jesus saying about light? It's a metaphor. Light's function is to illumine. We are those luminaries. But in what sense does Jesus want us to shine here? Primarily, he has in mind our conduct, how we live, holy living. This fits the theme of the Sermon on the Mount, which has so much to do with being doers of the word, not just hearers, but doers of the word. And Christ seals the deal in verse 16. I mean, just look at the context. Verse 16, he says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. He doesn't say that they may hear your good words. He says that they may see your good works. Now, surely this does not exclude the preaching of the gospel, but just Jesus has in mind here deeds done in righteousness. That, that's what he's talking about with this light metaphor. He mostly has in mind the, the, the image of purity, of holiness, of how you live. Now, we'll, we'll come back to this thought again, but let's, let's move on and ask a second question. Same as last week. Number two, what is Jesus saying about the world? What is Jesus saying about the world? Last week in verse 13, we did some digging to discern what Jesus meant by salt. And once we figured that out, it became quickly evident what he was inadvertently saying about the world. If salt in this metaphor is speaking of preservation, then then what is the earth in this metaphor? It's, It's the decaying meat, right? He's saying that the world is prone to moral decay, as depravity goes unchecked. Well, it's similar in verse 14. If Christ is using light to refer primarily to holy conduct and and right living, then what's he thereby saying about the world which is in darkness? Well, the obvious implication is that the world is, is not holy. It's an unholy place. It's a place of unrighteousness. Again, this fits the context. Back in verse 10, Christ said, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What kind of person would persecute someone else simply for righteousness? Only the unrighteous. And like Jesus said in John 3, that the darkness hates the light for fear that their evil deeds will be exposed. The wicked do their deeds in the darkness in the cover of night. The last thing they want is for someone to to shine the light on them, to expose their sinful deeds. They they can't bear that conviction. They they rush to put out the light. This world is characterized by unrighteousness. We know that. We used to be of the world. We we know this well. And is this not the teaching of Scripture throughout? That man's problem is a spiritual darkness. Now, ultimately, that refers to a separation from God who is light, God is holy. There's no darkness in him at all. And if you're in the darkness, you're not going to be with him. You will be separated from him. After the fall, man is no longer holy. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And now Romans 3.10 says there's none righteous. Not even one is righteous before God. Man's very nature has become dark and corrupt and unholy. Man's spiritual darkness shows itself in two ways. And the first is darkened thinking. 
First, our minds were given over to, to this darkness, to sin and rebellion against God. Listen to Ephesians 4, 17 and 18. We're told to walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. He says, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their heart. And the first way man's spiritual darkness shows itself is in darkened thinking. Their spiritual eyes have been blinded. Their thinking is corrupt, keeps them from God. And the second way man's spiritual darkness shows itself is in darkened deeds. Deeds done in darkness. If you want to follow along, just flip over to Romans chapter 1 to, to see this for yourself. But we're talking about all manner of wickedness. Romans 1.18, Paul relates how the unrighteous have suppressed the truth of God in their unrighteousness. Again, which we all once did. Man has suppressed the truth of God in unrighteousness. He says their foolish heart was what? Darkened. And as a result, God gave them over. He gave them over to this darkened, depraved mind. And what, what resulted? Darkened deeds. The things which are not proper. And he says in verse 29, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. This type of darkness has always characterized this world after the fall. This does not mean every person or every nation is as bad as they could be, but we're all on this same downward spiral. And how dark things really get largely depends on how much salt is around to, to preserve it. We reflected last time from, from the family to government to above all the church. These are forces God has put in place to to slow and stem this, this free fall into this darkness. But when these fail, when the truck just blasts past the guardrails, there's really one thing that's left, and that's the fall down the cliff. You know this has happened when a society flips good and evil on its head. Proverbs 17.15 says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. And then Isaiah 5.20, Isaiah says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. And Isaiah pronounces woe on such people. That's a word of judgment. And when a society gets to that, this point, there's really only two ways things are going to change. The first is judgment. As with Sodom and Gomorrah, which had fallen into such dark depravity, God put out their light entirely. He took them out. The only other hope is for reformation, which can't happen. You think of Nineveh, which was just as depraved as Sodom, yet they repented at the preaching of Jonah and were spared. One way or another, though, God will not be mocked. He will not tolerate for long a people's descent into spiritual madness. 
Now, I know that, of course, that's going to make us reflect on our own nation, a nation which sanctions the murder of 850,000 people a year in the womb, a nation that encourages people to live in the delusion that you can choose your gender, a nation that is happy to give puberty blockers to 12-year-olds that they can transition to a new gender more easily. I'm pretty sure that means we're at the stage of blasting past the guardrails, But even though America has countless churches, too many of them have been saltless for too long. What can we do? What happens next? That's not for us to decide, but we must simply resolve to be faithful. You individually, us as a church, just to be faithful as salt, as light. That's just what we're meant to do no matter what. And there's still hope because even though it says, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Satan blinds the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Satan is blinding the minds of the unbelieving, that they can't see the light. But the good news is verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 4, which says, the God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Meaning that the same God who said, let there be light, can enlighten any man, any nation as he sees fit. But Christ is telling us that that God chooses to work through his church. Their word and here, especially their witness, how they live in a dark world. So we can now make those connections. A third question, what is Jesus saying about the church? Let's, Let's bridge this together. What is Jesus saying about the church? You are the light of the world. This is a message for Christ's disciples still today. Who are they? Light, what is their function? To illumine the darkness, a dark world. The purpose is clear. The Lord wants his church to reflect Christ-likeness to the world around them. That those in darkness might see a great light and be saved. They'd be transformed. Like a city on a hill, there to be a shining beacon of Christ to the dark world. Puritan John Winthrop, he preached on this passage Right before a group of colonists got on a, on a vessel and, and sailed to the New World to form a colony in Boston in 1630, he preached this passage. And their whole goal was to form a brand new community in the New World. They wanted to be a city set on a hill. They wanted the whole world to see this is what would happen when we form a society based on Christ, on Christ-likeness. This was their mission. And this whole notion of being a city set on a hill eventually worked its way into the fabric of the American colonies. And just about every president uses it in speeches still today to talk about American exceptionalism. But America has fallen far short of Winthrop's desires with that sermon. He also issued a warning in that message. He said this, quote, If we shall deal falsely with our God in this work we have undertaken, and so cause him to withdraw his present help from us, we shall be made a story and a byword through the world, end quote. And I wonder how much longer until America becomes that byword. But the thing is, that when Jesus says here, you're the light of the world, you're to be a city set on the hill, he's not talking about any nation. This is not meant for a nation. This is meant for the church. This is the church's mandate. As salt, we are to preserve society from sinking further into the darkness. And as light, we are to lift society up, reaching the lost 
by God's grace, that they might be transformed and transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light, like we were by God's grace. Now, it is interesting because didn't Jesus himself say, I am the light of the world? Isn't, isn't he the light of the world? Why, why are we being called the light of the world? John said, like we read this morning, that Jesus was the light of men. And John 1, 9, there was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. And Jesus himself said in John 8, uh, John 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So yes, ultimately, of course, we know that Jesus is the light of the world. He's the actual source of spiritual life. And he came that we might be partakers of this light, which is to say, spiritual life. The message of his gospel is that this Lord, the light of the world, was by darkness slain. Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins. And it's no coincidence that during the final three hours of his time there on the cross, a supernatural darkness fell over the whole land, signifying God had come now to judge, to pour out his wrath on his own son. Now you could say that the light of the world was by God slain for us, a sacrifice to pay for our sins. But Jesus paid them all. He paid for them all. And on the third day, he rose again, proving his atonement was complete. And now he stands offering eternal life, entrance into this light to those who, who go to him and him only, who believe in him. In John twelve thirty six, Jesus said, while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. And you too here today must repent of your sins, your darkness that's within you. And turn to Christ by faith before the outer darkness of God's judgment overtakes you. But as you do so, as you believe, the Lord says he will then make you a reflector of his light. And that's what this means. You will become like the moon is to the sun. The moon gives off no light of its own. It merely reflects the light of the sun. And likewise, Christ, he is the real light of the world. He's the light source, the source of all spiritual life. But he has made us, the church, to be reflectors of his glory. Taking his light where it had not gone before. The thing about light is that it only shoots in a straight line. It's not so easily bent around a corner. You can't bend light by itself, at least. Light shoots in a straight line. Light doesn't bend around a corner by itself. But if you set up a little mirror or a reflector... You can get light to shoot around a corner, to go where it could not go before. And likewise, in a sense, you know, Jesus came to earth as the light of the world to bring salvation to all the nations. But the thing is, he, he didn't go very far. He kind of stuck around to Palestine. He did not come to a Royal Grande or anywhere else in the world. He stayed put. But it was God's will that as his son was lifted up, his disciples would spread across the whole world. They would reflect his light. And let it shine far and wide. All the places it had not reached before. That's us now. That's, that's us, how we are to be the light of the world. Our, our gospel witness in word, and, and here especially in deed, it's meant to be seen. It's not meant to be hidden. It's a very simple point. 
And Jesus uses two very simple analogies in 14 and 15 to, to say that. Verse 14, he says, A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Jerusalem itself was a city set on a hill. It was high up there. And the temple with its glistening limestone could be seen from miles away in the daylight. At nighttime, all the fires and all the lamps burning made the city quite a beacon. You could tell where it was from a ways away as you were ascending up to Jerusalem. And if if you're looking for stealth and concealment, you you don't found your city on a hill. You try and find a, a dark valley somewhere. The obvious implication is the church, likewise, is not meant to be hidden. Jesus did not make this church so that it could be safely tucked away in a desert cave. That is by far safer, but that doesn't fit with our function, which is to shine in a dark world. You can't do that when you're hiding in a cave. And Jesus reiterates this sentiment by saying, no one puts a lamp under a basket. Now, back then they had tiny clay vessels filled with oil, with a wick that would burn as a lamp in a house. And in a world without electricity, we take this for granted, but when you're inside at nighttime without electricity, it's pitch black darkness, no moonlight, no stars. You're in utter darkness indoors at night. But all it takes is just one lamp could light up the whole house. Now, it helps back then that most houses were just one room, but you get the point. I mean, it would utterly defeat the purpose of a lamp to conceal it. Like, like Rod mentioned just two nights ago, we were backpacking the sequoias, and at nighttime it was pitch black because it's a new moon. So I couldn't see, I literally couldn't see like my five fingers in front of me at one point. But thankfully we had these little LED lanterns. But how ridiculous would it be if we set those up and then just cover them with our backpacks or, or put them under a rock? Like how utterly pointless would that be? This might be one of the most obvious points Jesus ever made. You know, and lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. But that makes the point all the more poignant because it should be just as obvious that the church is not meant to be hidden away. That should be just as obvious. If the church is hidden, it can't function in the world the way the Lord designed it to function. The whole point of that lamp is to shine in darkness. Salt has to be rubbed right into the meat if it's going to preserve it. And light has to shine right in the darkness if it's going to illumine it. You get the point. And if I can make the same point as last week, it's only fear that keeps Christians from saying or doing otherwise. Or rather, I should say that leads Christians to say or do otherwise. Many people in the world, they're not happy when the light of Christ is shown in their eyes. And being hardened in the darkness of their hearts, they persecute the light bearers. And that's probably when your self-preservation instinct kicks in, flee, run away, hide. And there's a measure where we will flee harm. But look, too many just resolve. It's just, it's safer to blend in. It's safer to put the basket over the light. Just, I don't want my Christianity to come off too strong. It might get me in trouble. I don't want to say or do the wrong thing. I don't want to offend. I don't want to be taken the wrong way. Look, if this is you, you need to continue to pray for courage and boldness to do the right thing at the right time, to fear God, not man. But even in this text, let mercy and compassion motivate you because when you hide your witness out of fear, 
When you put the basket over the lamp, you're also hiding one of God's ordained means to draw people to salvation. And you realize God uses your living witness to convict others of their sins, to open their eyes that they might be saved. That witness actually grows more powerful if you are persecuted, yet you endure in Christlikeness. Again, isn't this the point Jesus makes in verse 16? He says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Not everyone is going to see Christ's righteousness in you and persecute you, like the last beatitude said. Some will see Christ in you and come to Christ. Glorify God in heaven. Now, that's a curious statement. You might wonder, how, how can an unbeliever glorify God? I thought unbelievers can't glorify God. By, by definition, they exist in rebellion against God. They, they don't glorify him. Whenever something good happens, they give glory to the universe or to fate or to themselves, but, but not God. Really, the only way to take this is that some will see your Christian witness be convicted of their sins and, and come to your Savior, giving him the recognition and the glory. What Jesus says here, it's really the same as what Peter says, 1 Peter 2.12. He says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, we, we think of church wrong. We think of church as, as a place we go to. Or as a Sunday morning activity once a week. It's, it's a, a thing we do. But that is not the church. The church is a people. It's the people of God. And we have a function. It's not just to gather, sit, listen to sermons, and sing some songs. That's all necessary, completely necessary for our internal edification. We do that. We will continue to do that. But that's not our whole mission. We have an external purpose as well as we scatter and disperse and live in this world, and that is to witness. We are made to witness. And yes, we know evangelism, our words, is primary when it comes to that witness. But just let's sink in what Jesus is emphasizing here, that another huge part of your witness is just how you live, your holy conduct, your light in the world, your good deeds, your Christ-likeness. Through that, through that witness in conjunction with the gospel, some will come to glorify God. Some will come to the light. And I think at this point we can try and make things practical and finish with number four. It's a how-to. How should we live as light then? This is the case, what he means about light, the world, the church. How should we live as light? I'll say again that, yes, sharing the gospel is part of this. 1 Peter 2.9 reminds us that you are a chosen people for God's own possession. He says, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Sharing the gospel is always essential. We know that we're saved by faith in Christ and, and the preaching of that gospel is necessary for that salvation. But if your life is inconsistent with that gospel... Your preaching's in a ring hollow, isn't it? Didn't James say faith without works is dead? We could likewise venture to say your witness without works is dead. 
I just think it's important that we emphasize what Jesus emphasizes here in application, which is how we live. Again, verse 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. Let me read again. First Peter 2.12, he makes the same point, probably drawing on the Sermon on the Mount. First Peter 2.12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, meaning the unbeliever, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. You see here, and what, with what Christ is saying, you shine his lights through your behavior, through your good deeds, through your works of righteousness on display. That's the emphasis here. We know Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. We're saved by grace through faith apart from the works of the law. But don't forget verse 10 of Ephesians 2. You're saved to produce good works, to bear that fruit. And one of the purposes of these works is to compel and convict the world to come to Christ. Now, we're not talking about deeds done in self-righteousness. We're not talking about prideful, boastful, hypocritical works. You know, down in Matthew 6, Jesus will rebuke the Pharisees precisely because they did their deeds to be seen by others. Like, wait a second, Lord, I thought you want us to do that, right? You want us to be lights so that our deeds are seen by the world. Why are you rebuking the Pharisees for doing that? But you see, the Pharisees, they worked very hard to make sure their works were seen by others, but it wasn't for the glory of God. It was all for their glory. They did it for their praise. And that makes all of their works null, void, and worthless. And to make matters worse, they were hypocrites And that's the type of witness that just destroys the church's testimony to the world. It makes it far worse. Turns the world against the church even more. Yes, the Lord is telling us to live as lights in the world. That's where others will will witness our good deeds. But this is not like a parade of self-righteous virtue where we puff our chest and thumb our nose at those ungodly heathens over there. Don't so quickly forget the Beatitudes, the character of the kingdom citizen. Christ blesses the poor in spirit, those who mourn over their own sins, the meek. The world needs to see Christ's righteousness on display, but since we are imperfect reflectors, it has to be framed in a spirit of humility and grace. But even that is part of witnessing Christ's likeness, and that is what living as lights is all about. How should we live as light? And really, overall, it's just about living as Christ in the world. It's kind of as simple as that. Just live as Christ in the world. The Christian, you are a follower of Christ. You aim to be like him. You function as a light of the world when you reflect Christ, the light of the world. Listen to this. Romans 13, verse 12 and following. Romans 13, 12, he says, The night is almost gone. The day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day. He says, not in carousing, not in drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. Part of you living as lights in the world is is what you don't do. Abstaining from the deeds of darkness, which used to characterize us. 
That is how you effectively put a basket over your light, your distinct holy witness. When you engage in the same deeds of darkness as the world, you're putting a basket over your light. But instead, in verse 14 there, Romans 13, 14, he says, but, he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Lay aside the deeds of darkness, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's it right there. You've been clothed in Christ's righteousness. Now you just let that come out of you. You let his image be seen in you to the world. That, that right there will take you in all directions. All directions that point to Christ are valid applications of this. Let those around you see in your life the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. How many people in the world live with daily joy? Show them your joy in the Lord. How many people have patience at the DMV? Show them your patience. Who has peace even when their loved one is dying? Show them a peace that surpasses all comprehension. Who has kindness after their flight was just canceled? Their trip was ruined. Show them kindness. Even in all these mundane circumstances of life, show them what Christ does to a life. Show them light. Show them all manner of good deeds done to showcase God's glory and goodness, not your own, where you care for the sick, the orphan, the widow. You render true devotion to God in prayer and praise. You're above reproach at work. You're faithful to love your spouse and raise your kids. And Angel and I, we got married young. I was 22, she was 21. And all of our unbelieving family members thought we were pretty much crazy. That we didn't know what we were doing, that we were doomed most likely. They, they didn't get it. Why would we get married so young? Why not just, you know, live it up and enjoy life? And you get married in your 30s and 40s. And there I was. I was a relatively new convert, relatively, a couple years. And I was extolling the biblical virtues of marriage to our unbelieving family members. But can you imagine how devastating it would be to our testimony if, if our marriage ended after a couple years? That's the type of vindication the world wants. You know, on the flip side, we firmly believe that, that by our witness... We would show them that there's something to this faith that we believe. I'd shared the gospel with my family members many times, would continue to do so, but we knew that by our slow, steady testimony as lights, we would, we would show them as well. Just that the life-transforming power the gospel has to bring harmony and peace. And by God's grace, it's been 16 years of marriage now, and although our marriage is far from perfect, whenever anyone compliments us, we just try and redirect that praise to the Lord. Because we know apart from his grace, his saving and sustaining grace, uh, we'd be lost. And likewise, every chance you get, every praise you get, that's your chance to reflect, to deflect and reflect that praise to the Lord, to give him the glory and let that light shine. It's not that you're going out of your way to show how much better you are than everyone else. Because we know even as Christians, we sin, we stumble, we fall short. You're just doing all you can do to show this world Christ in you. And even when you fall short, even in a big way, that's also your chance to show them that we serve a Savior who came and died to forgive and redeem even unworthy sinners like you, like me. What you can't do is hide. That's a big takeaway here. What you can't do is just disengage and flee society. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a prominent German pastor during the rise of the Nazi regime. And so many German pastors 
had capitulated to the Nazi party. And they were happy to reform the church, remake the church in the state's image. But Bonhoeffer, he led a movement known as the Confessing Church. And they declared that their allegiance was to God and Scripture, not the Fuhrer. And he was executed right before World War II ended. But before that, he said this. He said, quote, flight into the invisible is a denial of the call. A community of Jesus, which seeks to hide itself, has ceased to follow him, end quote. And Bonhoeffer lived in a day where most churches were quite happy and quite ready to just throw the basket over their lamp, just to blend in, capitulate, to stay safe. Most of them did. But he rightly understood the true call to discipleship, which includes a call to witness, even in the darkest of nights, to let the light shine no matter the cost. It's just, it's the purpose of a lamp is to shine. And the purpose of the church is to make Christ known. We are living in somewhat similar dark days. All the more so, it's time for the church just to be the church and to shine. We do that individually as well. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Let's take this charge to heart. And let's pray. Our God, our our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, we need this word of conviction and correction this morning. Because we all can be so comfortable. We all can be prone to that fear to, to shut up, to not let it be known who we are, what we believe, the Savior who has come. We have the best news to share, but the fear that comes when, when others don't want to hear it just keeps us silent. Or we're, we're timid to, to live out. Christ's righteousness, to not engage in the ways of the world because we want to stay safe. I pray, Lord, you just encourage us and embolden us uh, to to shine as lights, to be as you you call us to be. And even more so, move us to compassion because it's through our witness, our light, the light of Christ, that the world can be transformed. Others can be saved. How can we put a basket over the light? Be with our church and and everyone here individually that they would be convicted not to, to hide It's safe and easy to come to church once a week, but you call us to live as your followers seven days a week, 24 hours a day. Most of the time we're living in the world and just convict us to function, to to let the light shine by word, by deed, to let Christ be made known in us. We trust you to do the rest. You're the sovereign God who will cause light to shine in the hearts of men, but you say you want to use reflectors. May we be those image bearers, those light bearers, of Christ's glory. Convict us, be with us. We thank you for this word. May it sink into our hearts and transform us in the world, the community around us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.